Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode five of the CSB SCB podcast. Today we're discussing advancements in motion capture technology. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Scott Selby, CEO and co-founder of Thea Marculus and the director of research at C-Motion Incorporated. Dr. Selby received his PhD from Simon Fraser University and went on to complete two postdoctoral fellowships, one at the University of Geneva in Switzerland and one at Queen's University. He represents and has been involved in the development of two companies now, C-Motion Incorporated, which is located in Germantown, Maryland, and Thea Marculus, based in Kingston, Ontario. So Scott, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So our main topic today is motion capture technology, but you also have firsthand experience with another potential career opportunity for researchers in our field. And so we would like to chat a bit about that as well. Following your postdoctoral fellowships, you worked as a scientist at the National Institute of Health in the U.S. for four years. Can you tell us about what it's like being a scientist there and what you did when you were working there? Initially, it was overwhelming to come from a university environment where there are ebbs and flows. There's September, like now the students come, it's exciting. Uh, April, the students leave, uh, everything calms down. The NIH hums along at full speed. 365 days a year. So it's a bit intimidating to walk into that environment. Uh, I walked onto a campus, which at that time, and my numbers could be wrong, was 17,000 scientists. There are no students. And so everywhere you looked, <laughs> there were people doing stuff. <laughs> it was quite intimidating. But I, I learned that, you know, you can hang in there. It, it's, it's, not, it's not magical. It's not uh, impossible. You can just go and work. Then in 1997, C-Motion, which is now a global leader in software tools used in biomechanics research, was created to transfer the Move 3D Physical Rehabilitation Six Degree of Freedom technology from the NIH into a commercial product, which became Visual 3D. Can you discuss why this path was chosen and talk about the process of commercializing the technology? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't see it as a path. I, I saw it as a something. So to put it in perspective, I left the NIH after four years of being a scientist there. Uh, I did not work in the biomechanics lab. I worked with voice disorders, modeling the human larynx. But the lab right above me was Tom Keppel, who was developing Move 3D. And we both had a silicon graphics workstation. And there weren't many at the NIH where there were a lot of bench scientists. So we just got to know each other. After I left the NIH, I had a, a job for a year and a half, but I quit. And quitting meant a couple of things. I had three kids. And quitting meant I needed another job really, really quickly because I was on a visa in the U.S. And so I, I just started applying for jobs. I went to the NIH asking for a reference letter from Dr. Steve Stanhope, who directed the physical disabilities branch and was responsible, really, for nurturing Move 3D because the government was not really a software development outfit. But he felt it was important. There was nothing like it. It was important. And Steve said, well, you know, maybe instead of a reference, do you want a company? And he said, I got a great deal for you. There's no salary. The product exists in, in multiple ways for which you probably don't understand completely. And you'll need our help. And you can write a grant 
It was at a time where the NIH allowed you to write grants to firm technology transfer, but you've never written a grant before, so your chances are pretty slim. And I said, hmm, that's a promising offer. <laughs> How am I going to make any money at this so I can survive? But my parents happened to be in town, and my dad said, go for it. Let's see what happens. So under Steve Stanhope's tutelage, I wandered my way through the extramural funding part of the NIH. I wandered my way through the technology transfer. I was dropped into a company, C-Motion, that had existed, but I wasn't really sure what it was doing at the time, really. So I was dropped into the company, and we got the grant. <laughs> but it, it took about a year, took about a year to find out. So I, I had to do stuff that just, you know, had to fill in the gaps. I had wonderful subcontracts with two different labs at the NIH. I had one for this for Joe Hamill wrote a subcontract that, and Joe's been a champion of Visual 3D for our entire existence. But I wrote Joe a version of Visual 3D before it was Visual 3D, so he could use it in his lab. It, it's been quite a quite a ride. We've had multiple NIH grants. We started to make inroads in, in biomechanics, which we'll get to. The, the whole premise came from the reality of the NIH and being a support lab within the NIH. And that is, you don't get to pick the disorder and you don't get to take, pick the population you study. People come in and say, well, today I'm doing jaw movement. And the day after that, it's kids with disorder where their bones are so fragile you can't put markers on them because you could break their arm if you actually held their arm to put a marker on it. And you'd say, oh no, this has to work in an, in an MRI. What can we do in an MRI? So it was all over the map. So you couldn't go out and say, we'll take gates off. We'll take something we know or something expected. So Tom Keppel was faced with, well, what's the lowest common denominator here? And the lowest common denominator was one rigid segment. And he was prompted. Andy Danis was at that time the director of the lab. Tom showed up, knew nothing. And Andy says, here's a dissertation from MIT. Implement it for me. And we're almost through all the stuff that was mentioned in that dissertation, um, which was written in, I don't know, 1980. But it said, if you want to be general, treat every segment independently. So that's what Tom implemented. And that's what we took as visual 3D. All of the constraints and making some inference about what to expect from data, that's all later. Initially, it was, what is so obvious to the user? You want to track a foot, put markers on the foot. You want to track the arm, put markers on the arm. And when we get to the marker list later, we're taking exactly that same approach. How do you break this problem down into one that you think you can solve and solve it? So that's visual 3D in a nutshell. But there was some desperation, much like now, people really didn't want new software. <laughs> it's totally dependent on the camera manufacturers. There was software. The NIH funded us because those software were so different that you couldn't do a multi-center study. So they said, we'll take a chance. These guys say they'll work with any markers. These guys say they'll make what they're doing really obvious. Let's give them some money and find out. So the main concept, of course, underlying these technologies and softwares is pose estimation. So how we represent the position and orientation of segments that comprise the human skeleton. There's a spectrum of levels that we can evaluate and quantify pose. And you briefly touched on this in your CSB talk, but just as a reminder, can you explain the spectrum from the joint level to the more larger scale movement analyses that we might see in the laboratory? For, for us, uh, the spectrum is if you want to see inside a joint and you want to make sense of the structures inside a joint, whether it be contact, 
whether it be the, the smaller ligaments. If you want to do that, you, you have to be recording at a resolution that's much less than the movement within the joint. And if you take the knee, which is a hypermobile joint compared to many, the ligaments move maybe six millimeters. So if you don't have an accuracy down to a millimeter or less within the joint, you can't really study it. So the technology that we're using, you could use MRI and it, it's coming along, but the, the workhorse for us has been a biplanar video radiography using x-ray. And despite the small volume, because you can't really x-ray the whole body from, for, for movement, you can get better than a millimeter resolution in a joint. You can get the surface of the joint at better than that millimeter, and you can base your reference frames then on features of the bone for reproducibility. And the pose estimation is just the time series of, of movement of those reference frames. So that's the one end. The other end is let's just see a blob on a field. Let's, want, let's see, watch a, a football match or a soccer match. And we just want to know where the players are moving to get some kind of sense of the strategy being used. And at the level of a blobs, we're not going that far, but certainly it's relevant. Tactics have got to be relevant as half the sport. We want to track whole body movement in any context in game without participation of the people involved. Anytime you require a sensor or marker, the other team has to let you. So you can look at the whole field and the whole situation, the entire context is available. So for us, human movement, the interaction of humans is markerless. If you predicate it on, I don't want to have to have the buy-in of the opposing team, and I need to know what the opposing team is doing because it's a context for which my players are performing. So clinical joint level biomechanics is one extreme for us for which we use biplanar videography, or at least our customers do. And the other end is, is markerless tracking where if you can set up the cameras and see the subjects, you can track the subjects. So you brought up markerless, and this is obviously a big topic that we wanted to discuss with you today, which changes the game for how and where data can be collected. As you've explained in numerous presentations now, including the one you gave at the CSB conference this past spring, the current approach for identifying landmarks that a skeleton can then be fit to is through this deep neural network approach. However, this wasn't always the approach, and there were many iterations of markerless motion capture before it got to where it is today. Can you briefly explain the iterations that came before the deep neural network approach that's used today, and how this approach really accelerated the technology? There are kind of two classes here. I got to make sure that we understand the two classes. This is a biomechanics audience, and, and what we're trying to do, anyways, is biomechanics. We're trying to understand movement, and when we do that, we're trying to track the skeleton. So it's a very specific task is where's the skeleton going because muscles attached to the skeleton and, and muscles in their way are organized and delivered by the brain. So if you take that approach to it, and we'll start there, that's what the is. But there's a second approach I'll say very briefly. Some people aren't interested in the skeleton. They aren't interested in biomechanics, believe it or not. There are people that are interested in what people look like and what people look like when they move. And what is it like to have a room full of people moving? And there's an enormous amount of research. To me, I just point to Michael Black at the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen. And I'm going to paraphrase. They've got a, a tagline in his talks in his lab, but I'm going to paraphrase it. 
we want to create real looking people doing real looking movements in real looking environments. That's relevant for architecture, it's relevant for fashion. And I think my paraphrase is using the word looking three times because they're not trying to represent an individual. They are trying to represent a type of person that's moving in those environments. So if you want to take just a simple architecture one, if you're shown an empty room, it's pretty uninteresting and you can't really tell how they would function if the doorways are in the right place or whatever, because you can't see traffic until you put furniture in them. And the furniture is not so interesting until you put people on the furniture and people moving in the room. And this is all the work they're doing. That's not what we're doing. <laughs> but I wanted to give some context that there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into what we look like, what we look like wearing clothes, what we look like moving, what we look like interacting. Now, now back to our little tiny world of, we want to know how the skeleton moves because we want to be able to predict an intervention. We want to describe a movement or, or pay, maybe we just want someone to be a better athlete in some way with technique. So historically, the approach was, well, let's get lots of views of the person. Well, let's put eight cameras up. Eight cameras is a pretty standard number. And I'll probably bring it up two or three times today because people are always saying, can you do it with less or more? Eight's kind of a, a, a magical number in lots of different contexts. Put eight cameras in and eight cameras see a subject. And if that subject weren't moving, then you could take a model of that subject. Let's go scan that subject. Let's get a 3D scan of their body and say, I know what this subject looks like. And then mathematically, you can put the subject in the environment. So mathematically, this is what we do with the x-ray, by the way. You put this rigid subject into the environment and then mathematically you wiggle it until every camera view shows the outline that you see of that 3D object. You say, aha, I have the 3D pose. It's a little trickier if all these joints are allowed to move and much trickier if they're all allowed to have six degrees freedom. <laughs> but that approach is probably one of the early ones, but it's still used in, in some, in gymnastics in some form, is you build these simulation models and you try to register. You keep doing the simulation until it looks like the camera views you have. And once you get the simulation right and the camera views right, that must have been the movie. I'd make it sound easy. There's probably a handful of people in the world that can do that well. Fred Jaden being, you know, at the pinnacle of everybody that be, that's able to manipulate stuff like that. The next way is to say, well, okay, they're, they're moving. Let's take all our camera views, though, and say, when we look at the object, let's not discriminate anything special. Let's just say, where's the silhouette? Where's the outline of this object? That's what that camera sees. So from that camera... You could direct rays and every ray that crossed the subject from that view is a potential candidate. So you've got this huge cone that goes out with a silhouette around the edges. And then you do that from another side. So you take the next camera view, project it through, except it's only allowed to project through or identify what was left behind by the last one. And this is called carving. So as each camera comes in, they're carving up this original cone into this blobby kind of structure. One of the challenges is that it's really hard to find gaps. Your legs are almost together. Your, your hand is bent and almost closed. Your knees, you're almost hyperflexed and you can't tell which is thine, which is shank. That's the fundamental problem, but you've got this blobby thing and then you gotta be clever because from that blobby thing, we have to give it anatomical meaning. 
So we actually build a skeleton underlying that has a surface that's sufficiently deformable that we can kind of fit, again, register this model of the body to the blob. And it works remarkably well when I say, let's fit an, a, an unknown surface to a blob and you get anything out, it sounds remarkable. There's a lot of clever people have, have done this, but in the end, it, it's really hard to do multiple people because of occlusions. It's really hard to deal with very concave structures and it's costly in time, that registration. 10 years ago, and, and so many people can correct me on the dates, but let's say 10. Deep neural networks showed that they could recognize handwriting. So you can go out and recognize a license plate so you can be charged without stopping at a booth. That they could recognize a letter that you had written or a check that you had signed by taking a picture of it. The technology had existed for many years to do that. The whole concept of the deep neural network was really old, <laughs> but the computing power was not sufficient so you could do it in anyone's lifetime. All of a sudden there was computing power. And people said, well, recognize handwriting. Sure, we can recognize cats and dogs too. Um, we could recognize a tank. We could recognize stuff. And then someone came along and published an article that says, well, if you can do that, if you can recognize squiggles and lines and dots, I bet you could recognize parts of the human body. And let's, for proof of concept, take easy ones. I bet you could recognize an e-joint, an ankle joint, your nose, your ears. And what's involved in doing that? You take a whole bunch of pictures of people and you go in and you digitize for all those old biomechanics people out there like me that had to digitize film for their phd this is kind of like that you're digitizing pictures and lots of them the starting set really publicly available is like 150,000 pictures you have to be hand digitized every feature that you want to recognize has to be hand digitized and the tricky bits are, of course, quality assurance. Because everybody's going to jump up and down and say, well, if you're hand digitizing, how come? How do you know you're right? It's an awfully good question. <laughs> um, it's because you digitize them by more than one people. So take your 150,000 by more people. And then you define rules by which you can predict based on half your data set or three quarters of your data set, the rest of the data set. And you see if it made sense. So there are all these algorithm approaches to doing this. Anyway, you got this huge training set and every feature has to be trained and that's the original models in this form were easy ones the knee joint because from no matter what angle you look at the leg you can find the center of something so you can find the center of the knee or you can find the center of the ankle it was it seemed obvious but if you built a biomechanical model of only joint centers you can't get six degrees of freedom you can't even get three degrees of freedom so, hmm. <laughs> so it's a nice thought. It makes very pretty pictures to watch people connect dots. But if your goal, like ours, is biomechanics, yeah, we got to figure out how to get to six degree of freedom. And how do you get to six degree of freedom? Well, all the rules for marker-based apply. Get three features on each segment that are independent. Now, which three features that still are, what are the best three features is a bit unknown. A really interesting point that was raised in a recent debate at ISB between Dr. Kevin Deluzio and Dr. Julie Stevens was about the customization of the RigidLink model. And I saw that there was a follow-up rebuttal on Twitter soon after the conference. So once you obtain the RigidLink segment model of the skeleton from this markerless data, 
Can it be customized or altered in post-processing in any way to account for potential skeletal deformities related to pathological conditions? Or does the algorithm in its current state do an okay job at identifying these potentially altered landmark locations resulting from pathological deformities? We don't know, but I, I would imagine we don't do as well as we'd like. The issue is not unsolvable. The issue is not an issue of the, this feature-based approach to the problem. The issue is not about the neural network we build, and the issue is not about how we define our segments anatomically. The issue is we probably have never seen that deformity in our training set. So if you have a modest deformity, it would be a modest error. If you have something where your tibia now has got a right-hand bend in the middle of it, yeah, we've never seen that. <laughs> we wouldn't know what to make of that. So in that extreme case, what you do is go and get some pictures of that. And you add those pictures to your training set. And over time, the neural network, if you make it deep enough, by deep enough, the consequences, if you have enough data, you'll be able to find deformities too in time. So what do I mean by enough data? Because this is going to keep coming up. I mentioned 150,000 images. That's where we started. You can't build a deep network from that. We currently have more than a million. The goal, and as you can tell, these weren't all hand digitized by graduate students. <laughs> the goal is 100 million. If you've got a data set that rich and it contains skeletal deformities as part of that mix, it'll find them. But to say we can do it now, probably not. But we know how to get there. So you alluded to it already at many questions that you probably receive about the markerless technology pertain to its validity or the ability to produce similar post estimations compared to the marker-based system. I have to say, when I think about it, to me, it seems intuitive when I see a marker that it can be tracked, but then I don't work with neural networks. I don't work with machine learning. So even just not knowing exactly how it works makes it so easy to doubt that it works. <laughs> sure. There are a couple of issues here with the marker base. At the heart of what why visual 3D is important to the biomechanics community is that nobody ever seems to place markers in the same place or the same number of markers or makes the same assumptions. Why could a field evolve and 40 years later, there are new ideas on where to place the marker? It's because there's a fundamental problem with the markers. One is you actually have to place them by a person. You actually have to touch the subject and manipulate the subject to place them. And unfortunately, that doesn't get done very well in terms of accuracy. So the repeatability of placing a marker, some are really good and some are really bad. Um, and all these different flavors of marker sets are, well, which ones are really good for some movements? And so, so you say, oh, I'm studying this, so I'll do a different marker set. That just kind of uncontrolled ad hoc approach to placing markers because you can't place them well, is an issue. Now, the second issue is, well, they move. The one, the one thing we know from the x-ray is the markers move quite a bit on the skin. Well, actually, they sit on the skin well. The skin moves quite a bit relative to the bone. So we've got 3D x-ray data, biplane videography at the knee showing you know, translations of three and four centimeters. If this lateral marker is moving three or four centimeters, your axial rotation is not consistent, not reliable. So this challenge of markers is, can we get around this? And it stems from, do we want to compare to markers? Because if we thought markers was the answer, the one thing we would have in our data set 
is tens of thousands of pictures of people with markers doing different things. And if we did that, we would get arguably the same data as markers, which means we would capture the unreliability and the soft tissue artifact in our neural network. So in our million images, there's not a single marker on anything because we're just not so convinced that the reliability. Now, accuracy, can you track a marker? Yeah, you track a marker really well. Every camera company will get better in the millimeter. But the marker itself is centimeters away from where you want it to be on different poses. So do you compare against markers? Yeah, of course, because people ask you to. I'll try to make it a short laundry list of issues. For 40 years, people have tried to optimize camera placement, marker placement, setting, lighting to maximize or in terms minimize the errors associated with marker-based. And then what they say is put markerless in that constraint. Don't say what's the best situation for markerless. Say what's the best situation for marker-based and squeeze markerless into it. So number one, it already starts out with Markerless should be able to cope for, it should have bad lighting. Well, I'll tell you, video image, quality of the video image is the most important thing to be able to identify features. So if your lighting's not very good, eh. The second thing is where cameras are placed is different for markerless and marker-based. Marker-based has grown up with lateral and frontal images of the subject, where seeing one side of the body is good, because you're only trying to find a marker anyway. For markerless, because we're training on all these features in the body, it's best for the algorithm to see as much of the body as possible. So the best views are actually oblique frontal views, not side views or frontal views. So you've now got the camera set up in completely different ways when you're doing a comparison. Then there's the tricky bit. You gotta put reference frames on these things. And, and every undergraduate engineer knows that if you put two different reference frames on an object and try to track it in space, you'll get two different sets of signals by virtue of the reference frames being different. So how do we do this? Do we go in and say, we're going to give markerless the identical reference frames of the marker-based when we don't believe the marker-based are correct because they can't place markers well? That's a thought. Give them the same reference frames. Well, that, that doesn't seem quite right. But we played around with it and then we said, well, how do you define the markers? Similar to the extent that markers and features are analogous. So we define what's the frontal plane in the same way. We define what would be the segment endpoints in the same way. But our features are in different places than markers. When poor, I'm going to say poor Rob Kanko, I think he's done just fine with three journal of biomechanics articles, but he had to suffer through a lot of me changing my mind on how we should do reference frames. No, 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 Rob. I don't know. We're going to make them identical. Oh, no, no, Rob, we're going to tweak them after the fact and show that we can make them all the same. So the one thing we showed with this data is I can go in manually and make the curves really, really tight. But nobody does that in an experiment. And it's a cheat because I know what the answer was supposed to be. So we know that a good part of it is just these reference frames of the difference. But you can't publish that. I can't publish, well, if Scott does it and Scott tweaks the, the reference frames, we can get really comparable data. So eventually... Rob went through the most straightforward approach. Let's just give whatever the systems give. If the errors are small, does it really matter where they came from? If the errors turn out to be big, eh, we got some digging to do. Turns out the errors are small enough that we said, let the systems create the reference frames however they want to. And we'll just compare them as is. Some of the things, can you do six degree of freedom joints? There are some joints we can't do six degree of freedom with, with the uh, 
we're getting there. For the shank, we can't do six degree of freedom yet. So we constrain it to the knee. So that meant in the marker base, we had to have the same constraints on the knee. We are at the point with our next release where we can do six degree of freedom for a three segment foot and a six degree of freedom for the pelvis, the thorax, the shoulders, the hands. That gets back to let's make sure that the segments don't influence each other. So if you're not tracking the hand well, let's not have the foot come off the ground. Or if you haven't represented the torso very well, let's make sure the foot doesn't come off the ground. Those were easy changes. They confused the reviewers. They were never quite sure if, if Rob really had a handle on were they exactly the same. So in one case with the foot, the reviewers requested that on the assumption that the inverse kinematics, the constraints make a difference. Rob said, well, tell you what, I'll make the foot six degree of freedom and I'll constrain the foot as three degrees of freedom and we'll compare the data and they're the same. Now, where this comes from <laughs> is undoubtedly in a million images, they've never seen the foot separated from the shank. So it's pretty natural for the features to be detected relative to the shank. So it's not a constraint, I think a post-processing issue with the markerless. So discussing the markerless versus marker-based motion capture for pose estimation, there's also been for a while now, a big buzz around wearable technologies and specifically IMUs, so inertial measurement units containing accelerometers and gyroscopes so we can estimate the sensor's position or orientation. And there are many applications for, for IMUs, but many people use them to construct yeah, these linked segment models, so similar to what we try to do with motion capture technologies. And in your opinion, are these two technologies even comparable for the purpose of pose estimation? Oh, it depends on the question you're asking. That's the, the wishy-washy way to approach this. One of the issues of the IMUs is subtle and improving, and that is they've all got their own world coordinate system. So there's really no common world coordinate system for each IMU. Secondly, the IMUs don't, aren't really given anatomical meaning. So you put an IMU on and mostly people stand in a set pose of some sort. And you externally impose saying that's zero degrees. So immediately the reference frames are prescribed, not by the data, but by how you've asked the subject to stand. The sensors are getting smaller and smaller. Five years ago, I would have said, oh, well, the sensors really move a lot on the skin. They're getting smaller. That, that movement is less. But the very nature of, of the IMU is that it's measuring angular velocity and acceleration. It's not measuring pose. And so to make sense of the data, you do have to link all the segments. Doing six degree of freedom with IMUs is probably never done. And you have to typically have some kind of core or root segment in the body. So you track the pelvis, mostly. I, I, you could track something else. You could track the thorax if you wanted to, but you track the pelvis. And then every other measure tends to be relative to that. And the problem with that, from a biomechanics perspective, because this is the question you're asking me, would I want to use it for running? Or, is that the errors accumulate. So the feet and the hands don't tend to be where you really want them to be because the errors have accumulated. You're not directly measuring the foot. If you take a, a marker-based model and you constrain the whole body with the inverse kinematics chain, your feet move all around. Squishy feet, the animators call it. So if you're required to link all the segments, you're required to model all those segments. And some segments are hard to model, the shoulders are really hard to model. And the thorax as a single segment and the lumbar spine is a single, are hard to model. So I think the angular data, when you do the comparisons, the angular data probably looks pretty good. 
The question is, are the feet where you think the feet should be? They're not that far off, except that if you're really trying to do inverse dynamics, then you know, it kind of matters where the feet are relative to the center of pressure you've recorded. And the way around that is to try to model the foot and predict the center of pressure. That's really hard. I know people are, are doing it. There's some, there's some attempts in 2D, there's attempts in 3D to build these direct co-location models that in some way might be able to predict the ground reaction force. But if the foot's in the wrong spot, then the kinetics are less reliable. Now, I don't want to say they're not useful because, oh my goodness, it's pretty hard to put cameras for an entire downhill ski run if you want to know something about downhill skiing. So again, this is context. And they could do exactly the same to me and say, yeah, but the purpose is we need to be able to see this guy in the sailboat. That's a 500 kilometers from shore. And we want to know what he's doing. And your cameras are bouncing around on this ship. Sorry. Uh, so, but yeah, they, they have their place. The reference frames is a bit of an issue, but more importantly, the feet. So what, how did we respond to that? We've been asked this question a few times. When we got the core of our model, say the first 37 features, we had to make a decision. What's the 38th feature? What's the 39th feature? How do you do it? Do you base it on where you failed? That's a pretty darn good approach because you don't want to fail very often. Or you say, we do biomechanics and we want to know where the feet are. So what we're releasing at the end of the month has 11 features on each foot. So we can find the foot, six degree of freedom. Because we think it matters where the foot is. Is that a response partly to nobody else can do that? Absolutely. But I still stand by that we want to know where the feet are if we're going to study biomechanics of running or jumping. Many of our listeners will be aware of the laboratory uses of markerless motion capture and softwares like Visual 3D. And I can see many cool videos popping up on Twitter of labs that are having the markerless system installed. So before getting into questions about how markerless and Thea are incorporated beyond the research laboratory, Approximately how many research-based lab customers have adopted the markerless system so far? I almost consider all our customers research-based at this point, but um, that's probably not fair. About 70. Has this increase in research-based consumers been more recent, or has it been more of a gradual increase? Well, we hired a head of sales only last September. <laughs> so um, as of December, we had about three customers. So yeah, it's been fast. But I will, I will give this some context because there's the people who ask questions, the most doubtful people are the people who've spent 30 years, 40 years working with marker-based or IMUs. The mean age of our customers this year of those 70 customers is 38. So what we're seeing is the new generation of scientists are saying, I want to be able to ask different questions. I no longer care if I can reproduce my senior advisor's work. I want to ask my own question and I can ask very different questions that won't be confused with my advisor if I switch to markers. So is it happening quickly? Yeah, it's quite astonishing. And then actually I was, I was quite thrilled when I saw that age was, it was 38 for meeting our mean customer because that bodes well for us because there's different kinds of questions. It's new. It's exciting. The markerless technology offers a lot of potential to contribute to the evolving use of data analytics in sports for tracking athlete performance metrics, training, and injury risk, to name a few examples. How is Thea Markerless being incorporated into sport contexts? I see a lot about baseball. Can you briefly explain that and perhaps if there's other sports adopting this technology as well? Yeah, kind of two sides to that question. On-field biomechanics is mostly just baseball. Baseball is a very special case. 
we know who's holding the ball and where they're standing every time. And we know pretty much how far they can step and reach. So we can predetermine a modest size motion capture volume. So if you put cameras in a stadium, you can have a zoom lens give you a very good motion capture volume for pitching or for hitting. The hitter does tends to stay in the same spot too. So baseball self-selected <laughs> because we could, <laughs> or people could capture that data. If you tried to start with basketball, well, there are all these other players in the way. If you get basketball down to two players, that might be, would have been one of the first. But you know, you have five players in each team running around in and, in and out of each other's way. And the amount of occlusions tells you right out that you can't use eight, just eight cameras. So baseball was just special. But baseball is also a very data-driven activity data driven from every level, from the player themselves to the administration trying to negotiate contracts. And so it lent itself to this. Can, can you capture enough? Well, I'll give a plug to, to Kinetrax. I think they've probably collected 2 million pitches so far. So if you want to say, do we have a data set? I saw a biomechanics data set come out today and it's wonderful, 300 subjects. And I'm going, man, that's fantastic. And Kinetrax has 2 million pitches. From an analytics perspective, can't do that much with 300. There's an awful lot you can do with a million, two million. Can you collect data faster markers? Well, one of the tweets you referred to is, is a customer of ours, breakaway data. And what they tweeted was they collected 55 quarterbacks throwing 10 throws in two hours. Cressy Biomechanics, who um, are Cressy Sports Performance, I guess is, is what they call themselves. I like to think they do biomechanics, but they actually train pitchers. They're just able to collect data on every pitcher. In some sense, we and everybody else in Markerless could be seen as a, just a source of analytics for this enormous number of analytics companies that are appearing in the world. And so right now, nobody's in professional sports is particularly interested in data that's not collected in-game. Now, we don't do in-game data right now. Our customers are all in the, in the training labs, still looking at injury, still looking at return to play still looking at uh, consistency of performance, still looking at, at very basic biomechanics, if you prefer the old kind of biomechanics questions, susceptibility injury, that, that's predominantly still our customers in major league sports. And so that crosses into the other sports and the context in which they is so important. So it's coming. Another interesting context is ergonomics and human factors. And in these disciplines, a large focus is on how humans interact with external objects like handheld loads, tools, furniture, and surfaces. We talked extensively now about how the markerless technology is capable of tracking anatomical points that are then fit to the skeleton for pose estimation. But can we currently use the same technology to simultaneously track the pose of an external object that a human may be interacting with? Our approach would require training the data set, but objects are a little bit different from the human body in that most of these objects are rigid, so it doesn't take nearly as much training data. And to generalize with every object you add, you're getting it close to a general solution. But the, the most important thing is probably that you don't actually need a really deep neural network to track an object that you know it's shape and you know it's not changing shape. We get asked this a lot, and why aren't we tracking the tennis racket? Why aren't we tracking the golf club someday? But it's, it's a darn good question. Is there information in someone holding something, like holding a ball? Is there, is there information we can use? Sure, because we know their fingers aren't going inside the ball. We think we know how to use that information. We've not done it. 
the problem with, with ergonomics is it, it's hard to go into an environment where you can't affect the environment. And that includes where can you, where are you allowed to put cameras? <laughs> and we're still using eight cameras to try and get accuracy. And it's hard to go in and not affect your environment in ergonomics because they want to know all over the factory. And that's eluded us so far. So extensive research has been conducted to develop and validate the markerless motion capture system. And how is this work funded? Do you apply for grants? Is it collaborating with other labs or experts? Uh, the initial stuff was really funded by the, the founding company. So C-Motion funded it. It was not funded in at the National Institutes of Health because the reviewers thought markerless would never work. So why fund it? Which is very disappointing. It's not funded in Canada because in Canada, they don't give money to the company. So mostly it's funded by an investor and it's funded by our sales. And in fact, our interaction with our collaborators on the grant is we're an industrial partner that, that contributes to the overall project and we help them use our technology and they just do their science. And we have two grants like that, but mostly it's funded by sales. Some of it's assisted, and I'm sure the right word to put it, by customers. Because it's a general solution, it'll perform a little bit differently in every environment. So if a customer gets the software and says, I'm studying jumping, and here's my lab, and here are my cameras. If we add their specific laboratory to the training set, we can make their data better. But in doing so, we make our solution more general. There are many customers saying, I'll let you have this video if you make my data better. That's a fair trade. So it seems like there might be competing demands of like owning a company that sells this product um, while at the same time, you need to do the research and testing to validate it. How do you balance that? By not doing the research? <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounded flippant. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, it is something that we have to be aware of. It's the perception of it is challenging. And it was how do you get the first few articles out to show other people how you think this process should be done, even if we don't collect the data, but how you think it should be analyzed, influencing how we present the data even. So our role was to make sure our system performed and to make sure that the models that were generated would be the fairest comparison of marker-based and markerless. I felt unusually placed because I've had, you know, 25 years of making markers do the best they can. So I felt I could comfortably make the markers produce the best data that markers could. So I would, I talked with the students in the lab and said, this is the way I think it should be represented and here's why. And fortunately for us, it wasn't very, it wasn't very different from what Kevin Delusio has been doing for his whole career. <laughs> so it wasn't as if I said, totally different marker set, totally different way of collecting data. I said, use your marker-based system the way you use it. And we'll squeeze the marker list in and we'll make recommendations on camera placement. But we did not do the statistical analysis, even though I told you earlier, I fudged it. Yeah, that never got published. <laughs> That's me trying to prove a point that I could make it look better if I wanted to. <laughs> it never got published and it won't. So the most we've done in any of those labs is refine the neural network by getting data from them. So that's our, our total involvement. It's continuously evolving too, right? It takes time to have this type of data published. 
a very valid point of evolving. This hardly fits the scientific literature very well. So Rob gets an article published in Journal of Biomechanics, and, and we come along three months later and say, hey, we got a new version of the software that's better. The Journal of Biomechanics doesn't allow them to update the data. The hard copy scientific literature can't capture evolution very well. So if we came back with exactly the same study, with exactly the same data and a new version of our software, they'd say, uh, no, that data's been published before. If he comes back with new data, they'll say, how do you know it was like the old data? So, and we're fussing with this right now. The new model is internally and at the 3D is quite different. And Rob archived all the preprints to Journal of Biomechanics. And we go into an archive preprint that's linked to an article and put in data that's no longer linked to the article <laughs> to show the evolution of the software. Because one of the things customers are relying on is whatever we do now, we're going to do it better next year. And we're going to do it better the year after that. And how many technologies can you say, I bought it, but three years later, it's better than when I first got it. Sidetracking a bit from the motion capture application, you've been involved in starting two technology companies in the field of biomechanics. Do you have one piece of key advice for graduate students that might be interested in doing the same thing? Oh, man. Um, I started one company in grad school, just looking at body fat in some way. <laughs> Someone needed software. I said, that looks cool. I'll do that. As a grad student, I had no idea what I was doing. And this was such a niche area, no matter how many people have had their skin folds done. It, it eventually fell apart just out of sheer necessity. You can't make a living at it. That software existed for another 20 years being sold. I never made a penny off it. Go ahead. Um, C-Motion, I fell into, remember. And the real decision, is Markerless so different from what C-Motion does? And are the people involved just different people that a new company should be started. Um, well, that was started with two grad students. So Thea's me, some support from the companies and two grad students that I'd worked with at Queens. Marcus Brown, who I funded as part of his master's degree with a MyTech scholarship way back to give MyTechs their due, just started working with me. And Chris Saliba was a PhD student in the lab. For them, their decision was We've got this guy we've been working with. He says he can help fund this. And should we start a company where we get shares instead of not having shares in the other company? Yes. I imagine most companies are started that way. There's not a lot of soul searching. There's an idea and a possibility. And given the possibility, you just jump in with both feet. The hard part is just how long it takes. How do you, how do you get paid to get past that first hurdle? Because when I say the company's new... And I can rightfully say that, you know, the shareholders agreement ratified, the board of directors ratified was a, just barely more than a year ago. It's been five years in development within C-Motion. So you somehow had to get to that point where it looks like it just appeared. So when someone else that wants advice, be opportunistic. If you're, if you're really skilled at something and someone comes along and says they want that something, you've got, you've got a chance. To end the episode, we have five rapid fire questions for you. And for these questions, please try to answer in one sentence or less. <laughs> I don't know if I can do one sentence. Go for it. <laughs> Question number one, what was the job you dreamed of having as a graduate student? When I started graduate school, I applied to be an astronaut in the Canadian space program. Number two, what is one of the biggest professional challenges you have faced? Quitting my job and quitting my job without backup 
and saying, I'm going to figure it out. Question number three, name one thing on your professional or personal bucket list. To get to the point where I need to leave the company because it's as far as I can take it and someone else is going to come in. So my bucket list is, is to make myself superfluous. Question number four, what is the best thing about your current job? I get to decide what I do when I wake up in the morning. And last one, name one important mentor or colleague in your professional career. In the context of this whole adventure in biomechanics, Stephen Stanhope, who facilitated the transfer and facilitated the launching of Visual 3D and, and helped me find my way through the entire NIH process of funding and how to make it work. So I'd say Steve Stanhope. That concludes our fifth episode with Dr. Scott Selby. Scott, thank you very much again for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciated it. On our next episode, we'll be discussing neuromechanics of the upper extremity with Dr. Mike Holmes from Brock University. For all questions and inquiries, email us at students at csb-scb.com. <laughs>